I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey listeners, it's David. I hope your 2023 is off to a great start. While we're busy working on the second season of Speaking Soundly, which is coming to your podcast feed at the end of this month, I wanted to share this bonus episode where I speak with Jason Blitman on his show 76 West, a podcast from the Marlene Myers and JCC Manhattan. He graciously had me on to talk about how Speaking Soundly got its start, what amazes me most about interviewing my friends and colleagues, and a little bit about my life as a musician. So here's that episode. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi there, I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas, and on today's episode, I talk to principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, David Krauss. David and I talk about the new podcast that he hosts, Speaking Soundly, where David is in conversation with today's premier professional performing artists. Was music in the family? Where did your love of music come from? Neither of my parents were professional musicians. Uh, there was always music in the house. My dad was an audiophile. He had a beautiful stereo equipment and loved listening to music. Classical, jazz, and opera was was always being played in the house. Both my parents played the piano. So there was a, a piano and a stereo and a love of music that was always there. So it, it was always encouraged. That's very cool. And was it something that yeah. you always found you gravitated toward, you know, I know that some some people are like, oh, well, my parents always had this in the house or that in the house and I wanted nothing to do with it. But for you, was it, did it kind of just come easily? Or it... Yeah, I think that, you know, when, when you're a kid, it's like you grab onto that thing that either mm-hmm. you have a circle of friends or the thing that you're good. So it's like, you know, if, if you're an athlete or you're this or you're that, Music seemed, the trumpet particular seemed to be my thing. So um, nothing else was. Like when people ask, when did you decide you want to be a musician? You know, the joking answer is when I got my SAT scores back. (laughs) Uh, Because Juilliard didn't require that. And uh, well, I had to find something I was good at. But yeah, that was was my go-to thing that I found my people there. In Mm -hmm. high school, I was already going to Juilliard pre-college. So while I had friends in high school at Juilliard pre-college on Saturday, I had my people. It was like sure. the, the, the high school group that I kind of wanted uh, throughout high school. So I think as a kid, again, it's just that's where your friends are. So that's what you do. When did you pick up a trumpet for the first time? You said trumpet specifically or trumpet in particular. What, you know, for me, when I was a, when I was in middle school, you know, we were required to take band or PE and obviously I took band and so (laughs) and uh I ended up with a trombone because I had long arms I wanted to play the trumpet but my arms were longer so they told me I needed to play the trombone and I think it was for all of six months and that was the extent of it but was it did you choose it what was that moment for you I wish it was a better I wish I remember Mm -hmm. but um, I think it was fifth grade fourth or fifth grade I picked the trumpet I don't know why 
probably looking back on it, I was a chubby kid and they were like, okay, you know, you probably can blow a lot. Your lungs are bigger. I don't know. It was, it was, it was probably that, um, looking back on it, it stuck. And then, um, I played the trumpet. I was probably just mediocre or like everybody else uh, through grade school. But then I remember since my parents were avid opera listeners, they saw that you could audition for the Met Opera Children's Chorus. So there are some operas that have kids in it and a chorus of children or maybe a solo child. Um, So I auditioned for that. This was around like age 11 going on 12, got in and then like twice a week, my mom would drive me in from Long Island to the city, to the Met, and we'd rehearse. And if you were lucky enough, you, you got in performances. So I, I sang, that was more my thing, especially around, around the time of my bar mitzvah. All my relatives were like, oh, this Saturday, you know, David's going to be up there singing and he sings at the opera. So he's going to have this amazing voice. I didn't have an amazing voice. Like I could sing like any kid can sing. And, right. you know, and when you uh, put 40 but, of them in a group, they sound okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I didn't, I remember feeling a little apprehensive, like, oh my God, are they expecting to hear Pavarotti? And it's mm-hmm. like, my voice is breaking. It was, it was fine. But uh, that was just, you know, just learning a, a bargain, so like getting up there and, and learning a, a Torah portion just to do is stressful enough, much less the anxiety that your aunt thinks you're going to sound like Jose Carrera. <laughs> that, that's like an added burden that I that's didn't need. That's so funny. Setting you up for failure with really high expectations and unrealistic expectations because you were right. a boy going through puberty. <laughs> exactly. That's so cool. And, and so cool that you have spent really your whole life at the Met. Does it feel that way? I, well, I'll tell you, after a long performance, it does feel like a lifetime, that's for sure. sure. But yeah, it feels like a long time, especially now because I was young when I joined and I felt like the kid and I was the kid and I was among the younger people there. Now there are kids coming in straight from school who are like 22 years old, 21 years old. They look like babies um, and it's just funny to all of a sudden feel like, wow, there, there's, there's been, there's been some time that's passed, but I still, I still kind of feel like a kid, but for some yeah, reason, yeah, I that's mean, good. 20, over 20 years has passed. Sure. I mean, 20 years of employment doing the thing that you have been passionate about your whole life. Like that's a very cool thing. I feel very lucky in, in a very similar way. I'm curious, there's that stereotype of musicians who are kind of quiet or who are introverted and who are with their people and that's the clique that they're a part of. But I feel like to really come outside of yourself and and create something like Speaking Soundly, you need to be a certain person and have certain interests to want to go there. Well, first of all, the podcast came about during the pandemic for a year and a half. I'm not performing. And... Sure, I missed performing. That That's a vital part. But the other part that I didn't realize that I missed was hanging out with musicians and being around artists. I knew enough people personally. Winton Marsalis has been a, a teacher and a mentor of mine since I'm 12 years old. And pianist Emmanuel Axe, he agreed to do it. So I knew enough people that um, I could get it off the ground. And in these conversations with these people, I really enjoyed just hearing about what performance meant to them. 
-hmm. And the interesting part to me was I know of the things that I deal with on a daily basis every time I pick up the trumpet, both physically and emotionally and creatively. Like, I get that, but the process of hearing that from uber-famous musicians and people that maybe most haven't heard of, but just to hear what they go through, you know, from, from the simple questions like Joyce DiDonato, she's one of the most famous opera singers in the world. She commands a stage, and when I'm sitting there in the pit and I'm watching her, I have a trumpet, I have an instrument. She has nothing. She has her voice. Well, and which is her own I'm, instrument. I know, but that's like, that's it. She has yeah. nothing to hold on to. She, right. I could buy a, I could buy a fancy trumpet that maybe yeah. makes me sound too pathetic. <laughs> She's stuck with what she has. And yeah. then on top of that, I'm sitting there in, uh, you know, in a tuxedo, looking at music, having a conductor tell me exactly when to play. It's all like very managed and I sitting. have a small part to do. Yeah, sitting, you know, comfortable. Maybe I have right. a bottle of water by my side. Yeah. And meanwhile, these opera singers are up there in costume, in these heavy, scratchy wigs, under the lights, not reading music, everything's memorized. Having to tap into these emotional qualities that an actor would have a hard time getting into and executing some of the most death-defying uh, musical roles ever created. Mm -hmm. And having to do that night after night on a stage mm -hmm. with no microphones. I was just going to say, know, with no microphones. Yeah. So yeah. I'm a musician. I've been doing this all my life. But I'm looking up at these people with awe. And it turns out the questions that I wonder about, a lot of people wonder about. Sure. About, yeah, have been have you been surprised by anything? Is there something in particular that has stood out to you? Just finding out little things like... Emmanuel Axe knows how many steps there are in the subway platform between Lincoln Center and 86th Street. And and like just because he goes <laughs> he said he's he likes to step off on the so just knowing these little things mm -hmm. about uh, these performers that I hold so high is just interesting. They're, everybody's a person. Yeah. <laughs> so we tend to put these people up on a pedestal, but to hear that an opera singer gets butterflies and gets nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, Isabel Leonard, I spoke with her, she's another really famous opera singer. I asked her, does she get nervous? She goes, well, only when I'm singing a language that I don't really know. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, that's right. They have to like act and sing in a language that, so she knows all the romance languages, but she had to learn German. So then I'm thinking, and then she, she was talking about singing in German and how stressful that is. And I'm like, yeah, that's stressful. Um, because when I'm hearing her, she sounds German. Like, I, I don't, I don't right. even think about it. So just hearing the process behind these great artists is really inspiring. I think whether you're a musician or not, but it's, it's really inspiring to me. What's your little thing? You said you learn little things about everybody. What's, if someone, if someone was listening to a David Krause episode, what would, what would they say? Oh, wow. I didn't, who would have thought? About David Krause. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, do you have a couple hours to unpack this? I mean, I, I think I was always a better musician than I was a trumpet player. So there are trumpet players that, since they were young, can play really high, really fast, really loud, just naturally gifted at the instrument. Um, I wasn't. I, I've had to work at it from day one, hmm. and I continue to work at it. If I don't practice... It goes away in a split second. 
but I've always had a nice sound and a good musical background, wh- whatever it is. But it's always the, the music has always come really easily to me. But the trumpet playing has always been a struggle. And um, although I, I do fine, you know, I, uh, I, I get the job done. But in my head, as I'm playing, part of me is like, remember when you were in sixth grade and you sucked at the trumpet? Like everything I play is like this neurosis going out of my head. And this is even after 20 something years of doing it professionally at the Met. Right. Um, yeah, I have these mental arguments. Hmm. And so I'm amazed listening to these performers that have to just step up and do it. What are they thinking to themselves? Because I'm just a ball of negative thoughts that I'm just trying to distance myself from. And I think hearing these other artists suffer a little bit of that is encouraging, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still something that I'm working on. I think it's really inspiring to hear that at even the level you're at, you're still having these feelings. I've listened to a handful of episodes and they're so great. And I think really fun to hear these perspectives, you you know, because I think in an orchestra, especially, you know, you become one, you're like a pointillist painting, you know, your, your kind of job is to really become this bigger picture as these individuals. And so I think to your point, you know, everyone is a person. It's an easy thing to forget when you really see an entire group of people making up this one thing. And so getting these individual stories has been really cool. Um, One of the ones that I listened to was with Spencer Rubin, who, for our listeners, he is a freshman at Juilliard and has 1.5 million followers on TikTok and is is a, a clarinetist. Is that right? Uh, he's an ob- he's, an, he's oboist. an oboist. Close. An oboist. It looks very similar, Sorry. but yeah, he's an oboist. As a person who's been in your position for as long as you've been in it, what does it feel like to see this kid blowing up on social media, making classical music cool? It's amazing. And, you know, I have to say that my my youngest daughter, she goes, what are you doing today? I go, I'm going to go talk to this kid, Spencer Rubin. She goes, Spencer Rubin? Are you kidding? And she doesn't play the oboe or, you know, Uh she she plays the violin. But I was just amazed. I mean, I guess she's one of the 1.5 million people (laughs) that follow. But, um, yeah, it's amazing that the following that he has. Um, But it's not shocking after talking to him because in the podcast, he talks about every morning he has to make sure he's practicing Mm. four hours before homework. And then he has to do this. Then he has to make his reads. Yeah. And then make reads for hours. So, I mean, (laughs) whatever he chooses to do, he's going to do it. So I think one thing that he does tap into is the fact that classical musicians are seen as infallible and highbrow people that do the Sunday Times crossword and read the, the Atlantic and the New Yorker and uh, and only listen to classical music. And quite frankly, that that hurts the brand. And now through social media and through people like like Spencer and and, and organizations are, are are getting it. I mean now the Met has an Instagram, the New York Philharmonic, they're getting it. But it's a sudden shift that's happening within the classical world. And I think that all of the impetus goes towards showing that other side, showing the backstage, showing that we're not devoid of humor. Yeah, uh, you can be young and fun and enjoy classical music. (laughs) Exactly. The idea that 
classical music is something serious, that it's only a Beethoven symphony, that it's only meant to be enjoyed with 3,000 3, people and you're not supposed to clap at certain times, mm. it's kind of a drag. But mm -hmm. through kids like Spencer, uh, who's a, you know, a really promising musician as well, it, it's been really fascinating um, to, to see his take. And it's, it's, it's inspired to see the success and any numbers of people turning toward this classical music is, is going to be good. So yeah, no, he's yeah. really doing it a, a huge service. That's very cool. Another episode that I listened to was Joseph Alessi, who is yeah. kind of on the on the flip side. You know, he's been in the business for so many years, had a bit of a scare in terms of his hearing. And you right. it, it made me start to think about like, oh, you think about surgeons and having insurance on their hands, right? But when you're a musician, it's like, oh, it's hands and your lungs and your diaphragm and your lips and your ears. I mean, God, your ears can really change who you are and really take you out of the game uh, in the way it could an athlete, you know? And so for him to think like, wow, this could be the end of my career, but it's okay. I had a really long and wonderful career is really um, an interesting thing to, to think about too. It is true. Well, he had a this shingles attack that led to Bell's palsy, which all of a sudden, not a gradual thing, all of a sudden he wakes up, he can't play a note. Yeah. You know, just thinking about that is frightening. I mean, he fought back and and he's he's better than he was before. So, it, you know, it's it turns out good. But this idea of the thing that you're really passionate about and the thing that you identify with all of a sudden not being there is a really scary prospect, I think, for anybody. Same thing with, I was talking with Winton Marsalis and he talks about, and I remember when this happened, he had a, a growth within his lip mm. and he had to have it excised surgically taken out like you know we're talking about the greatest trumpet player on the face of the earth all of a sudden has to go under the knife um on his know, lips on his literally on his lip right so you wonder uh at that moment like who you are as a person what you are without your your superpower mm -hmm. um th there's a lot to think about there so it, it it's been really uh really interesting conversations and at times a little uncomfortable and scary because it's bringing mm. up these things that I certainly haven't contended with. So before I let you go, we, one of the questions I've been asking people is, you know, in theater, we have a dramatic question. The dramatic question is the, the thing that is the engine that takes us through the story. Like, will Dorothy find home? Right. What is, what is David Krause's dramatic question? What's your engine? What gets you up in the morning? What's the thing that keeps you moving? that like maybe is not necessarily uh, unattainable, but it's that like, we're, we gotta keep moving toward it. What, what do we think that is? Well, I think as it pertains to music, my daily driver is the thing that leads me to the practice room every day, mm. which essentially is, you know, I don't practice because it's fun. Practicing is a drag. To me, it just is. I'd rather be doing other things. Um, but the thing that leads me to the practice room is to someday have my trumpet disappear when I'm playing. Like that's mm. what, when I listen to great artists, whether it's trumpet players or singers, or when I watch a great actor, like they're gone. And whoever they're portraying is there. Mm. Um, so my goal, it happens every once in a while that I'm playing 
and everything is firing on all cylinders. My chops feel great. My head isn't working against me and the circumstances are just right. And it's like floating. Hmm. It's just like this out of body, great experience. And you're communicating with people without talking. And it's, you couldn't imagine a more perfect way to human. And so those things happen because of the work that I have to put in. Because like I said, I'm not as talented as I wish I was physically on the trumpet. So I have to do that work. And I think that's the thing that when I wake up every morning, it's like I have a rehearsal, I have a performance at night, I have six hours to teach. When am I going to practice? Because if that goes away, those moments of really making a beautiful sound with other people, that becomes more difficult. So, uh, yeah, that's the crux of my issue. I love that. Will David Krause's trumpet disappear? And I have to say, the idea of like, will it disappear so you're not thinking about work so you can have a good work-life balance? Will it disappear when you're no longer with us? And will you have left a legacy that you are potentially hoping? You know what? I think it means a lot of things and it's very moving to the creative person in my mind. Thanks, David. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Speaking Soundly. Special thanks to the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan and the team at 76 West, especially host Jason Blitman and audio engineer Matt Temkin for allowing us to share this interview with you. Be sure to stay tuned for the second season of Speaking Soundly coming later this month, featuring Rufus Wainwright, Rhiannon Giddens, Anthony Roth Costanzo, Terrence Blanchard, and James Ennis, just to name a few. In the meantime, you can catch up on episodes from season one that you might have missed, like bassist Christian McBride, mezzo-soprano Isabel Leonard, pianist Emmanuel Axe, and trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. And follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly for more information on season two. I can't wait to share it with you. It's going to be awesome. See you soon. Thank you.